People will forget what you say, but they won't forget how you make them feel. Maya Angelou. You're listening to Writing Roots, brought to you by Aspen House Publishing. Welcome to Writing Roots. I'm Lee Hull. And I'm Lee Esses. And we are very excited to have Carla Hoke on the line, Jedi Master and Master of Fight Right. She (laughs) does a lot of work with organizing and helping people understand how to write fight scenes. This is our bonus episode in our series of Act 2 prompts. And if I am ever at a loss for how to move the story forward. My go-to is to add a fight scene. So we are very excited to have Carla on board. Welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Glad to have you here. Throughout this month, we've been talking about how to get you through the most difficult part of writing. And that is usually the Mm -hmm. middle. You know where you want to start. You know where you want to end. But you can't figure out how to get there. And like Lee said, one of the best resources for that is to add a fight. Get some tension in there, get some arguments, and then throw a few punches. So Carla, tell us about you. I live in Texas with my family. I currently train in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but I have experience in about 10 different fighting styles. I've been doing martial arts right about 10 years. I'm a lifelong writer. My father was a writer. My aunt was a writer. And actually, I am related to Shakespeare, no joke. His mother's sister is who I'm related to. So I've got writing in my blood. But about 10 years ago, I was writing a book, and I was going to put some fight scenes in that. And I thought, you know what? I don't know the first thing about fighting. I've always done sports, but they were never combat sports. And in the 80s, which is when I mainly went to high school, there weren't really many martial arts around. After Karate Kid, there were some karate schools here and there, but there was none in my little bitty town. So at the age of 38, I thought, you know, let me just go to a self-defense class. Surely I'll just go to one or two, and that'll be all I need to know how to write a fight scene. <laughs> and uh, I went to a couple classes, and the first class, I didn't even participate because it really made me nervous. I expected it to be like, I don't know if y'all watch King of the Hill, but there's an episode of the cartoon King of the Hill where their son Bobby goes to self-defense, and they all scream at the same time, stop, that's my purse. And I thought that's what it was going to (laughs) be, stop, that's my purse. And it was way more than that. It was street defense, and they had mock weaponry, and I liked the idea of it. I thought it was really cool, but I was too afraid to do it on my own. But slowly and assuredly, I got in there, and after several months, the coach of the class said, you know, we have an MMA training class. Why don't you come? I was like, what? I can't do MMA training. And so I went ahead and did it. I thought, what the heck? You know, I I can't do this, but I'll go ahead and do it anyway. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And, you know, MMA is mixed martial arts. And so I got to sample different martial arts. And from there, I got to go to different gyms and study different things. About six years ago, a friend of mine, Ben Wolf. We were at the Realm Makers Writers Conference, and they were having a roundtable discussion about writing fight scenes. And he said, you know what? I know a writer who does fight scenes. I had met Ben previously years before at a writing conference, and he and I kept up with doing Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu and all that kind of stuff. And he goes, you know, she knows something about fighting, which if you've never met me or seen me in person, I do not look like someone who knows anything about fighting. I look like I am someone who knows everything about keeping things tidy and maybe organized in the house. That's what I look like. I am not a big person. I'm not a young person. 
So the powers that be, Becky and Scott Miner, said, okay, you know, we'll put her on there. And they put me on the very end chair, which I understand. And the rest of the chairs were for real authors. And they were asking different questions. You know, there was a doctor. There was, oh, gosh, Robert Liparulo, Jill Williamson. I forget who else was on there. And people kept asking questions about fighting and getting hit in the face. And I could speak to those questions. And so they asked me more questions and asked me more questions. And I thought, I wonder if anybody would be interested in learning how to write a fight scene. And da-da-da, here I am. So now you have not only a podcast, but you have a website. And don't you do consulting? Oh, my goodness, yeah. I have a book with Writer's Digest. I have a website. Uh, The book with Writer's Digest, Fight Right, How to Write Believable Fight Scenes. I have my site, Fight Right, and that's W-R-I-T-E dot net. I have Fight Right Podcasts. I'm on IGTV. I'm on YouTube. And I do consulting every now and then. There's a publishing house and a couple editors that every now and then, if something doesn't seem quite right, they'll shoot it my way. I do mentoring mainly at conferences. But every now and then, different publishers and everything will send individual authors my way, and I'll do that too. Anything I can do to get my grubby little hands and helping somebody write a fight scene, I'm happy to do. So let's get into that. Figuring out how we can add a fight scene in middle of Act 2 to help push the story along. So do you have a recipe that's great for a fight scene? You know what? I wish I did. It really depends on the story. It depends on the author. I wrote a blog post once called Bob Rossing, Your Fight Scene. (laughs) And for those who aren't familiar with Bob Ross, he kind of walks you through painting a picture with a formula. The thing is, you can't do that with fight scenes because not all fight scenes are going to be a happy little tree with a lake behind it. (laughs) Everybody's copying what Bob is doing. Bob's not personalizing it to everybody. I wish I could say you do one, two, three, four, but it's not that easy. I wrote an article for Writer's Digest magazine. I write for their blog, too, and it was called A POW Method. And the POW is, the P in POW is prepare. The first thing you need to do is prepare the stage, and the preparing is the hardest part of anything. You know, when you're preparing to get your book ready, when you're preparing for a fight, all the training and all the -the behind-the-scenes grunt work, that takes the bulk of the time. And to prepare, you need to answer three things. Why they're fighting. That's the number one most important consideration. You need to look at why they're fighting. You need to look at where they're fighting. You need to consider who, and not just who character, but who you as a writer. What is your skill set? What is out of your skill set? You know, I'll go ahead and tell you that writing military kind of stuff, that's out of my skill set. If people ask me current military information, I refer them out to somebody else. But you need to consider what your strengths are as a writer, and then you need to consider your reader. And then the O is for ouch, and this does seem to perplex people. When you write your fight scene, you really need to focus on the intended injury goal. Because when you are in an actual fight, when I'm competing, and I still compete in jiu-jitsu, I go in with different submissions that are my thing. They're my go-to. And I'm going to work my opponent and work my strategy until I get them in the position to where I can do my favorite submission. But sometimes that doesn't happen. But I'm still moving in that same way. So you think, okay, ultimately I want this character to be shot. Well, that's going to be a very different movement in the fight than if you want them to be stabbed or if you want them to be punched. So look at what your ouch goal is and then block around that. 
sometimes people want to start with the confrontation, and I understand that, but that really doesn't help you with movement. It's easier to get somewhere when you have a map, and I think considering what you want that intended injury to be is kind of a good map. And then the W in POW is the way there. So you prepare for the fight, you decide what your ouch goal is, and then you make a way or you block around that. And again, that injury doesn't have to happen, but it's still going to determine how the combatants are moving. That is a great acronym, especially that middle part, the ouch goal. When I try to write a fight scene, I think I've naturally tried to script to that of, okay, who do I need to be out of the fight? What is the end goal? How badly do they need to be injured? And then I try to write towards that. Very smart. How badly they need to be injured is so incredibly important. Because a lot of times people will, you know, it seems like they slide to one end of the spectrum or the other. They either hurt them quite badly, but they're still in the fight, or they don't hurt them very much at all, and they're kind of out of the fight. That's really good that you consider how bad you want them injured. Generally, when I'm writing a fight scene with somebody and they they don't really have an idea of how they want them injured, I'll say, well, how colorful do you want this? Meaning, Mm -hmm. how bloody do you want this thing to get? (laughs) And if they don't want it to get bloody, well, that's, you know, hey, that just absolutely glues all these different things. Okay, well, do you want them to have something visible? Uh, Yeah, it needs to be visible. Okay, well, think about what's most visible in everyday life, your hands and your face. Okay, well, what's an injury that could happen to the face? Oh, you could get punched in the eye. Okay, there you go, black eye. And I really don't think you need to pull out a shotgun for a mosquito. If you (laughs) want somebody to have a black eye, punch them. Uh Punch them. Don't use a mace for Pete's sake. You know, (laughs) just do something realistic. And if you want to know what a mace or a hammer or something like that, and that's awful to think of, but I mean, that's like if you're a crime writer or that sort of thing, get out a watermelon or a melon of some kind and hit it with a hammer. That's kind of what happens to the skull. It's an awful situation. So think about the most logical way to get to that injury. When it comes to fights, people like simplicity when they're in the fight. TV, movies, they lie to us. It is very rare that you get somebody who does all the fancy spinny moves. They are looking for the most efficient way to deal the most damage. That is what people should be going for. Absolutely. And I think sometimes as writers, we have a habit of going overboard with the showiness. And it is because what we see on TV. And I do think it's okay to add a cinematic quality to something. Absolutely. People want that. People want to see the crazy spinny moves. But the problem is when you start writing it, you can lose your reader. So it definitely needs to be more simple than what you see on TV. Those crazy showy moves, and there are martial arts. I did Taekwondo for a couple of years. There are some very showy kicks. Well, that serves two purposes. One, if you need to get a horse off a rider and you're able to jump up and spin, you may be able to get a rider off of a horse. It's also to intimidate. Consider it like the rattle on a snake. A snake rattles because he wants to give you the opportunity to back off. And so it's kind of like puffing up your chest when you do all that crazy spinny stuff. But again, when you start writing it, it is quite easy to lose people. So you need to make the most direct route to that injury. And if you want to give it some drama, then go into the feelings of the people. Go into the sensory experience of it. It's great to show emotion. It is great to put in the sensory experience. 
However, you have to be careful if the fight scene is first person. One of the functions of adrenaline is to dull emotions. Now, I'm not saying that nobody has any emotions when they're soaked with adrenaline, but biologically and from a scientific standpoint, those emotions are not as pronounced as they are without adrenaline. So when you are fighting, you are not going to be overwhelmed with fear while you're fighting. That does not help you when you're fighting. That's why adrenaline kind of dulls that down. You don't need to consider the emotional implications of a bear eating your face. You just need to get away from the bear and then consider the emotional implications after. So if it's third person, you can talk about how their faces look or you might be able to see emotion or a look of panic on somebody's face, but people aren't going to be fearful while they're fighting. There is actually a grounding exercise that people do that have anxiety. I have anxiety sometimes, and this is an exercise I do. And people with PTSD do this as well. And what it does is it helps ground them to the moment and take them out of whatever experience is going on in their head. And that is called the 54321. And I think it is a really good tool to use when you're writing. So if you're trying to figure out how to put sensory elements into your fight scene, go stand in your fight scene from the point of view that you're writing. What are five things you can see? And you can't see fear. So that's not one of the things you get to write. What are four things you can hear, three things you can touch, two things you can smell, one thing you can taste? And even if you don't actually use any of that, it really does help put you in the scene. If you're writing a medieval fantasy and they are having a fight in a stairwell, you know what? You smell stone, especially if it's damp. There's going to be a dirt kind of smell. There's going to be a dust kind of smell. Okay, what else might you smell in that stairwell? Well, where's the draft coming from? Maybe you're smelling something from the kitchen. Maybe you're smelling something from, you know, a jail cell somewhere. But try the 54321 method, and it will kind of help you with the sensory experience of the fight. I cannot express how useful it is to physically stand up and walk through the choreography of a fight. If you're sitting oh, Gloria, down yeah. at your desk and at your keyboard or your pen and paper and you're writing it out, that's kind of helpful. But I actually, when I'm building my own fight scenes, I'll choreograph it on a separate piece of paper first and then write it down. Physically doing right. it helps yeah. you realize that, oh, the leg doesn't bend that way. Right. I have a YouTube tutorial on punching. And it wasn't so much to teach. You don't have to know how to punch in order to be able to write a great punch. Chuck Polinick, the author of Fight Club, he's not a boxer. But darn it, that man can write a heck of a punch. Mm -hmm. I did that punch tutorial because I kept stressing, look at what your body is doing. Look at how you're oriented. If I am punching a jab with my left hand, I am not going to be able to do a spinning kick of any kind with my left foot because of the way my body is facing forward. I will have to totally reset my body and then spin around. And that kind of defeats the purpose. Now, I can do a jab and a knee kick with that front leg, but you don't know that sometimes until you get up and start moving. So I think that is incredibly valuable. Anytime that you can get up and move around, and I know writers who put pillows. I know one writer puts stuffed animals out. So they'll know where the face is of different people in the fight. Nice. And it helps keep you oriented. So I have a question for you. And this is okay. one that I have debated and sort of come to my own conclusion, but I'm very interested in a professional's opinion on this. Oh, and my. Okay. So I am Kung Fu. 
So very different oh, from jujitsu. I jiu-jitsu. love kung fu. I know what's called kind of fu. I <laughs> trained kung fu. I trained kung fu with somebody on one-on-one sessions. I think he was crane technique. Uh, and he taught me a little bit of a few different things, but I never went and took, you know, I was never part of official curriculum. I okay. love Kung Fu. That is one I would really like to take. And I have looked around for different courses and I'm sorry, I'm just blathering on. Okay, what's the <laughs> question? I'm so sorry. No, I'm glad to hear it. So there's a certain amount of technique that comes behind certain moves. So if I Absolutely. want to bend their knees forward and get them onto the ground and I'm standing beside behind them, then stomping on the top of the calf is a great way to get them to go forward and down. Obviously, that's fairly technical instead of just like hitting behind the knees, which is easier for non-technical people to understand, but it's not exactly accurate. So do you choose accurate or understandable? I choose understandable, and I think you can do a mix of the two. And part of the reason why that technique works is there's a pressure point at that part of the calf. Not only are you buckling the knees because of the force you're applying to the back of the joint, but there's a nerve that runs through there that kind of weakens the whole leg. I think you can say that you drive your heel down behind their knee or at the top of the calf. But really, at the end of the day, what matters more? How you got them to buckle their knees or the fact they're on the floor. So I try to tell people only write what you would see in a comic book panel. And that is one thing you would see in a comic book panel. That's an incredibly important move. It may seem like a little thing to other people, but not only is that driving you to the ground, that'll make your leg numb. So you don't get up as fast from that kick. So I think it should be as technical as your reader's knowledge. you got to consider your audience. You have to serve the story, and the story serves the audience. Now, if it's a book like American Sniper, Anybody who buys and reads the book American Sniper will not be surprised to know there's a whole chapter where he writes about his favorite guns. That makes sense. However, I think if you're writing a basic fantasy or something like that, you're not going to have a lot of people that have an extensive knowledge of swords. They're just not around as much. They don't have a knowledge of HEMA or even know what HEMA means. When I mention HEMA, people are like, I don't know what that means. Historical European martial arts. And people don't think about Europe having martial arts. And actually, sword fighting is a martial art. Number one, what is the most important thing about this? Is it how it happened or what happened as a result? And you really have to simplify it down and say, does my reader really care about this? And now that I bring up the book Fight Club. It's not chock full of fights like people think it is. There is one night where he is at Fight Club and it has like three or four different fights from that night. But it's all in a span of like two pages. They're very, very short. In one, a guy gets him in a headlock. Now, somebody like me who has jiu-jitsu and wrestling experience, I want to know how he got him in the headlock. (laughs) But that's really not nearly as important as how Chuck Palahniuk describes it is that the man held his head like a football. Okay, that's perfect. Because if you're not into that sort of thing, well, then you have an idea. Okay, well, you know how people hold a football. In the United States, we do, definitely. And if you are versed in martial arts or in wrestling, you understand, oh, the body is behind him, you know, and the head is poking through to the front. But the most important aspect of that is the fact that he has a guy in a headlock. So think, what is most important here? And will my reader, who has absolutely zero knowledge of this, understand or really give a care 
it is hard when you are in a martial art to not do things absolutely correct. But it's like English, okay? That That's our language. When we speak English, and this is something else that kind of cracks me up, when I read dialogue in books and it's all very correct, people don't talk like that. People, they shift tenses, they cut off words, because that's what's real. And so when you relate that to fight scenes, okay, how I'm writing the fight scene and the technical part of it is not Queen's English. But you know what? It's American English, and that's what people are speaking. <laughs> so when it comes to fight scenes, a lot of people who write don't know fighting at all. Which leads to a lot of mistakes in the process. So are there any common tropes that you see in popular fiction, whether that is books or movies, that you look at and say, that's just not going to happen? Yes. Well, for one, they really, really make it showy and complicated. One author that I was working with, her character had to go through a portal of some kind. And she had the character doing a forward roll into the portal. And she was like, well, you know, they're shooting and stuff. And I said, what's on the other side of the portal? And she goes, she doesn't know. And I said, well, let's think about this. First of all, I can understand that she might want to roll if people are shooting at her. And that's not because it's a more efficient way to move. It's because it changes the target. If you're standing up, people have an idea of, okay, here's the chest. But once you start rolling up and everything, it gets a little harder. Now... I do not suggest people roll if people start shooting at them. I'm saying in this one instance, it made sense. And I said, but think about it. What's on the other side of that portal? And I said, if there is somebody waiting for her on the other side of that portal, she wants to be on her feet. Mm -hmm. I was like, wow, you know, I didn't think about that. So really showy things and, oh, heavens, two swords at the same time. Uh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Two sword style. And two sword style is a thing. That is an absolute thing. And it's difficult. I always ask, why do they have two swords? And almost 100% of the time, it is because two swords are cooler than one. And I admit, <laughs> two swords are way cooler than one. But that doesn't make sense. I don't know all the two-sword style, but the two-sword style that I am familiar with comes from Filipino martial arts, and it's called Makababy. And it comes from when people in the Philippines would go between towns and they would have one machete kind of on a sheath that they used kind of as a walking stick. And they used it to keep away dogs and all that kind of stuff. Well, then they had another that they kind of had over their shoulder and they had their sack of whatever they were selling hanging from it. Now, if anybody came to rob them, it was quite easy to bring the one that's around on his shoulder, bring it around, take the sheaths off, and you are ready to go. And actually, they didn't have to have a sheath. It's just the best way to go. And then you would have kind of the flourish of the two swords. And that's kind of like the rattlesnake rattling. People think, uh, is this really something I want to be a part of? But yeah, I mean, then it goes on to have a style that absolutely will tear somebody up. Mm -hmm. But it's complicated. It's an incredibly, if you think writing one sword is hard, put in another sword. When you're picking a weapon for your character, it needs to make sense other than just being awesome. I believe so. it's samurai style has the long sword that is defensive mm -hmm. and then the short sword is offensive. Having two differences in the swords is also helpful. Yeah, and that serves two purposes, actually. I tell people where there's a katana, there's a wakazashi. And the katana is the longer one, and katanas, and this is something else, swords are lighter than people think. Guns are heavier than people think, and you don't have a 9, 10-pound sword. to thank Goliath, okay? <laughs> Goliath in the Bible had a huge sword, but, you know, he was like 9 feet tall, so that made sense. 
but swords are generally lighter than people think. Even um, like a broadsword is like six pounds, maybe. A katana, two or three pounds, which seems so light until you start swinging that baby. Yep. And I took Iaido, and that is katana work from Aikido. And I was like, oh, this will be awesome. And I thought my arms were going to fall off in 30 seconds. I thought, okay, if I'm on the battlefield with a katana, you win, period, because I can't hold this thing up. <laughs> so you have a katana, and yes, it has some reach on it. You may be in a situation, however, in close quarters where that reach is going to work against you. If you're in a narrow hallway or if they get right up on you, well, then you're not able to wield the sword effectively. So... That's when you pull out your wakazashi. So it's very good for proximity, really good for getting through the type of armor used in Japan, not the European armor. That is another thing people need to consider. Armor is determined by weaponry. The armor that was around at the time of crossbows is going to be incredibly different than the armor that was around when you just had a double-edged sword. And in Japan, they did not have the type of metal that they had in Europe, and so making a suit of armor wasn't as practical. They just didn't have the supplies for it. And so that's why you have leather and, and all the layers of paper and all that kind of stuff. But, yeah, anybody who has a long sword is also going to have a shorter knife or dagger. If you are going up against chain mail, you will have a dagger. Because sometimes your sword, as heavy as it is, it could break somebody's collarbone, but it may not be able to get necessarily through the chainmail. That is when you go for the dagger. Because the dagger is designed especially for piercing. And your sword may not be designed for piercing. Every blade looks the way it does because it suits a certain purpose. Mm -hmm. And so your sword may not be designed for stabbing, but a double-edged dagger absolutely is. So remember... If you got a long sword, it's got a short sword with it somewhere, or a longer knife like a dagger. So along that same line, in a lot of popular movies these days, the people who have a sword are carrying it ice pick grip. I saw this in The Witcher, and it drove me nuts. Do you have an opinion on the ice pick grip? You know, it's not necessarily wrong. Any cut you can do with a traditional grip, you actually can do with an ice pick grip, okay? And by the way, if you do have a single-edged knife and you're holding it in an ice pick grip, it's a better idea to have that edge, and the edge is the sharp portion. The blade is the whole metal piece. The edge is the sharpened portion. If it's single-edged, you need to have that edge to the outside, not inside towards your body, not psycho-style. Psycho-style, <laughs> the shower scene, it's facing inward. And it's not that it's not wrong. Clearly, it gets the job done. <laughs> but look at what cutting area you have. You have that little triangle between you and the blade. But if you turn that blade around, then you got the whole world out in front of you. The thing about a sword is it's really good for reaching stuff. You know, I can see that you might hold it in an ice pick grip if you are in a setting where holding it traditional grip, there's just not enough room for it. I can't say that it's wrong, and I don't have a ton of HEMA experience, but what experience I have with blades, there may be times when you would want to turn a sword around and hold it like that, but again, it kind of does away with the whole reach thing. But, you know, if you're in close quarters, you may not be able to wield a sword like normal, so there's that. So one of the things that I have learned in my experience in writing fight scenes into my story 
is that the page and a half prior to the fight scene should be leading to the fight scene, not only in dialogue, but in setting that vase next to the couch so that when he picks Mm -hmm. up the vase, we don't have to be explained to it where it is and keep this fight scene moving faster. Do you have any tips for setting all of that up prior to a fight scene? I think that's one of those situations where you want to go and stand in a scene of a fight. Where a fight takes place is actually more important than who is fighting, and that tends to confuse people. But, I mean, think about it. Would you rather fight a shark or a gorilla? Well, if it's on the sidewalk, I'll take on a shark. No problem. You know, gorilla open water? Sure. Gorillas, as far as I can tell, cannot swim. I look for pictures of gorillas swimming, and there's just not (laughs) many out there. So where you're fighting is a huge deal. A fight that takes place in a gymnasium is going to be different than a fight in a furniture store. So go and stand and look around at the scene of your fight. What can be a buffer for your character? What can be an impediment for your character? What's going to be a weapon of opportunity? And sometimes you don't have to specifically point out if something's there. You know, if somebody attacks you in the kitchen and someone grabs a coffee pot and hits them over the head, that makes sense. You know, you don't have to point out the page earlier that there's a coffee pot there, but it would be great for you to talk about them holding a coffee mug in their hand. So you can give hints, you know, paint the picture for people so that it makes sense. Now, if somebody attacks me in my kitchen and I pull out a katana, that may not make tons of sense. That might be something that I would want to point out in some way, you know, in the pages prior. But build the tension. Even if it's unexpected, if it's an attack, build the tension or, you know, do the complete opposite. Make everything so calm. Brene Brown did research. People are scared to feel joy. They're more afraid of joy than they are disappointment or fear or anything like that because they're afraid of losing it. And she had people watch a video, and it was a family in a car, and it was snowing outside, and it was nighttime, and it was Christmas carols on the radio, and they were all singing, and she turned off the video. She goes, what happens next? And a huge portion of the audience was like, they die. (laughs) They get in the crest. And then there was a smaller portion that's like, well, they make it to Grandma's house. And she said the reason people keep pointing out that crash thing is they're so afraid to hold on to that joy because what if they lose it? And I think that's great for writing because it's where the brain kind of goes. Make everything so calm. This is an option. It doesn't have to be. Obviously, sometimes you got to build attention. But I think it's also cool to just have things really calm because then, you know, busting down the door is that much louder. Mm-hmm. But again, it depends on the scene. It depends on the writer. I've had people ask me, you know, how do you make your fight scene flow? And I think you got to develop your writing voice. If the three of us witnessed the same thing and we wrote it down, it's not going to be from the same perspective. Everybody's going to have a different sound to it. And the more comfortable you are in your writing voice, the easier that scene is going to flow because you're going to be paying attention to the technical aspects and you're going to be paying attention to your reader more than you're going to be paying attention to, I have begun the past five paragraphs with he. Oh, dear heavens, I'm so bad about that personally. I will look back (laughs) over and I'm like, dear heavens, he starts the next 10 paragraphs. I've got to stop that. So, you know, just get comfortable in your voice. So do you have an opinion on the lone wolf trope? Yeah, your name? Tell me what you mean by lone wolf trope. 
So often you see the fighter character who is unattached to anybody in the world because they are afraid of losing anybody that they're with. And so they operate alone. They operate without a team. And then a team comes and tries to change them. And they fall in love and live happily ever after. Gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, first of all, if they are a skilled fighter, they had a team at one point. You are not born with a skill. You're born with a natural ability, like writing. We are born writers. We have the natural ability to write. But that doesn't mean we're good at it yet. You know, you have to develop a skill. And so the lone wolf, I think of Ronan, the samurai who were off on their own. First of all, that was not a good situation. They didn't want to be on their own. They were disbanded by the government, basically. And so they kind of had to go off on their own. So that was not ideal. And it was a dangerous situation for them to be in. So with the lone wolf, he hasn't always been a lone wolf because it's not just about learning technique. It's also sparring. Sparring is incredibly important. So he had a team at some point. I don't know that it's right or wrong. I mean, which is better, the lion or the tiger? The lion hunts in a pride. The tiger is solo. You know, but they're both very efficient killers. I think it's a great opportunity to put some layers to your character. Okay, well, why are they on their own? Like you said, they don't want to lose anybody. Why don't they want to lose anybody? Well, because such and such happened. Well, why? And I think you need to give it the why treatment. Keep asking why until there's no more whys. As far as them being adopted by a new group, you know, it depends on their damage. And that may be what's crucial to your storyline. But whether or not it's a good idea to be a lone wolf, Well, again, are you riding a lion or are you riding a tiger? So it's not that one or the other is necessarily better. I will say that if you are come upon by a group, sure helps to have somebody with you. We are meant to live in community. And having somebody on your sick is a good idea. Mm -hmm. And as much as Lee might want to, the whole book can't be a fight scene. What? (laughs) I know. I know, it can't. These characters that are fighters, the warrior kind of characters, what are they doing? What do they look like when they're not fighting? Well, it depends on how close to the fight it's been. If you talk to me a month after my fight, I'm going to be doing regular stuff. If you talk to me the afternoon after my fight or the day after, I may have a black eye. I'm going to be very skinny because I had to cut weight in order to be in my white weight class, I'm probably going to be limping or grimacing in some way. But when they are not fighting, they're just doing their job. You know, whatever their normal everyday job is, that's what they're going to be doing. But if they have to fight a lot, they're going to be in situations where they keep their skills sharp. I mean, you look at the Vikings. They lived off the land. They were a farming people. And they used axes and they used blades all the time. And so in some ways, their daily life helped them become better warriors. But they also took time to spar. Sparring is not about learning. Sparring is about using what you know under the effects of adrenaline. Because when you start fighting, honestly, sometimes I don't remember the fight. Somebody videoed one one time because I was so scared in the moment (laughs) that I kind of had an adrenaline blackout. And then once I saw the video, I'm like, oh, okay, I see what I did there. So sparring helps you, you know, again, use those techniques that you know how to use even when your brain's not cooperating. It helps you with muscle memory. So when they're not fighting, they're going about their daily lives. 
you know, fighters are wives and they're husbands and they have regular jobs. You know, they're teachers. They're normal, everyday people, even professional fighters. I am friends with professional fighters. And this tends to shock people. Some of the nicest people you'll ever meet, most respectful, kind people you'll ever meet, because they have an appreciation for suffering that other people don't. They have an appreciation of what it is to be human in a way other... It's kind of like when you've had a near-death accident and, boy, you appreciate life more. Well, when you have felt pain, when you have been humbled, when you have been so tired you can't stand up anymore, you just have an appreciation for humankind. And does that mean every fighter out there is great? Nope. I don't mean to be crude, but everybody has a beehole, and that's just how society works. You're going to have jerks out there. But for the most part, they're kind, decent, generous people because they are aware of the human condition in a way that other people, they just aren't. So when your fighter isn't fighting, first of all, look how close it is to the fight. If it's, you know, a good bit away from the fight, they're going to be doing normal, regular things, except when they're training. I take care of my family. I take care of my pet. I write, and then I go to a gym and choke people or mainly get choked. Just be real. (laughs) Then I go to a gym and get the poop smashed out of me, and I get choked. That's how you, you know. Are. But otherwise, they're regular folks. Yeah, it's interesting to me to see people with these kinds of skills. Most of the time, you can't tell the difference, but every once in a while, where they're sitting in a restaurant, which oh, they're going to spot on the, the table. Yeah. Yep. My teacher, I don't remember the circumstance, but he was sweeping the floor, and as he's moving the broom from one side to the other, he's shifting his stances and it looks very martial arty as compared to if me prior to studying, if I were sweeping the floor and my feet planted and the broom's doing this, it's interesting to look across a coffee shop and try to think through, is that person strategically sitting there or are they just sitting there because that was the open spot? Right. I will say trained people face the door. Trained people aren't going to have their back to the door. And when I teach self-defense, that's something I, I say, make it to where you can see the room. You know, know who's around, you know what's going on. But in the case of the teacher, I have noticed that different fighting styles, you can actually tell what kind of fighting style a person does by the way they are walking. Judokas have a walk. Jujiteros, people who do jujitsu, have a walk. Wrestlers have a walk. Even though those are all very similar in some ways, they all carry themselves differently because it's a different skill set. It's also a different mindset. The wrestler says, I will force you to do things my way. The jujitsu person says, follow me. Let's see what happens. No, this is safe. Go ahead and turn there. You know, so it's just a very different mindset. And as far as your instructor, oh, my gosh, kung fu is such a graceful, graceful Mm -hmm. art. And there's so much you have to have focus. You have to have balance. You have to be very aware at the shifting of your center of balance. And that's, you know, going from the balls of the feet, side to side. Your instructor's very aware of where their balance is. So I think for the most part, fighters do tend to be graceful people. Now, that's not to say they're going to walk in a room like Barishnikov. That's not (laughs) what I'm saying. But, you know, I'm I'm always surprised. Like, I'll watch my coach walk in the room sometimes, and it just kind of cracks me up because he is such a graceful person on top of being, you know, pretty dangerous and (laughs) pig-headed. You know, at the same time, they're just, they're very aware of where their body is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my instructor calls it a circle of blood, which is like, um, 
if I can go from wherever I am in a sliding half horse in any direction and then punch you in the face, you're too close. That's my circle of blood. Yes. I used to do that with my kids. Um, (laughs) My kids used to be, I would put my hands out and I would say, if I can slap you, you're too close to me. I love you, but you're going to need to get away because there's an age where they're just with you all the time. Mm -hmm. I would go to the restroom and I kid you not, my daughter would bring a coloring book and sit on the floor. Well, I mean, I'm like, sister, she goes, I know I'm just going to color. I'm like, this, this. So I did have a thing. I'm like, if I can slap you, you're too close. So if you're in my wingspan, think about it. And I talk about zones when I talk about fighting. I call arm distance zone one up against somebody is zone zero. Mm-hmm. Zone one is slapping distance. Zone two is kicking distance. And the safest places to be are zone three, beyond the foot, or zone zero, inside the punch or inside the kick. Mm-hmm. So do you have any popular fiction portrayals of characters that you really like how Batman throws his punches or whatever? You know, again, I, I hate to keep mentioning Fight Club, but it's always the one that there are some writers that I read to get me in a mindset. Now, if I'm personally writing something, a work, a fiction work of my own, now, not if I'm doing nonfiction. Nonfiction, it's not an issue. But if I'm writing fiction and I'm reading another book at the same time, I have a nasty habit of taking on that writer's voice. So does Lee. So, me too. Uh, is it Okay, good, 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 good. You know what? I think it's because we writers are mimics. We're so used to stepping into other people's shoes and taking on a different persona. But I think we just kind of soak that sort of thing up. But Chuck Palahniuk is one of those that glory. If I'm going to soak it up, I'd like to soak up his strategy. And the reason is it's because his fight scenes are so simple and so clear. I did a blog post not too long ago, and I juxtaposed three different fight scenes. One was from Fight Club, one was from Ender's Game, and the other was Lord of the Rings. And clearly, they're very, very different. And Orson Scott Card, when he writes a fight scene, it takes place like in the gym locker room shower. And it's rather complicated. I mean, of course, it's perfectly written. It's Orson Scott Card. But that's not my favorite thing. My favorite thing is very simplistic. I like a good Ikea fight scene. I call it <laughs> less is more. Very clean. Just That's me personally. So some good references on that. Chuck Palahniuk, if you've not read him, he can be raw and gritty. Just wear that in mind. Just look at that blog post. Orson Scott Card. And it depends on, too, what your genre is. If it is fantasy, well, then maybe go look at some fantasy work and look at the fight scenes in those. If it's a sci-fi, well, go look at some sci-fi scenes. But as far as my personal go-tos, Palahniuk is it. But again, it depends on what I'm writing. If I need to, if somebody pays me to write a fantasy fight scene, I'm going to spend a week reading fantasy books and just kind of getting in that mindset. Mm-hmm. So it really kind of depends on the genre and the personal taste of the reader. If you just want to know how to do a good old fashioned slugfest, Louis L'Amour. <laughs> if I'm not, a, you know, the old Western cowboy writer, he was a boxer. He can write a good slugfest. <laughs> I personally am inclined towards guns in my fighting style. I like to be ranged. (laughs) And I adore John Wick. A lot of he an option? (laughs) I didn't know John Wick was an option. (laughs) His gun work is so realistic. In he reloads. Yeah, exactly. Hello. Hello. And Um, New York reloads. Thank you. Thank you. For those who don't know what those are. A New York reload is when instead of replacing the magazine, 
you just switch to a new gun. Thank you. <laughs> next. Drop and go to the next. He actually is doing all of that work. He mm-hmm. did. Now, there are, there are a few scenes where he may have a stunt double come in just for it because of insurance, but he trained jujitsu. He trained judo. He did Filipino martial arts. He did shooting training. He worked his behind off for those movies. And if anybody asks, well, you know, is there a movie you recommend for realistic violence? Um, John Wick. Now, I will say that if you get hit by a car, generally you don't just tuck and roll and then shoot. Yeah. But if you're John Wick, you do. I mean, he's not the normal guy. But as far as technique, oh, my gosh. My jujitsu gym actually went on a field trip together to go see it. And everybody loved it. I reached out to Keanu Reeves on Twitter. I'm so sure he got it, and I bet it was his actual account. And I invited him. I was like, look, if you're in Houston, come to our gym. Writer's Digest, when I teach for them, they teach generally two places. They have conferences in Manhattan, and then they have one in Sacramento. Last year when I went, I tried to go to a jiu-jitsu gym in the area. And the one I wanted to go to, my coach said, he speak broken English for you. Not go there. No, you not go there. And then he told me another <laughs> one to go to, and I'm like, ah, dang it. But uh, there are some in New York. I'm like, I'm gonna just go in and just see if there's anybody fancy that shows up. So in my mind, I know expectations are a recipe for disappointment. But in my mind, when I teach in New York, I'm gonna spar with Keanu. It's fate. It's supposed to happen. <laughs> I would love to do a shooting competition against him. He would blow me absolutely out of the water, but... He's amazing. I love watching his YouTube videos of him doing tactical shooting training. Mm-hmm. And yep. that is exactly what shows up in the movie, and I just, I adore it so much. <laughs> yes. And the New York Reload, you're right. Why you want to carry one gun? I mean, it's like the two-sword style. If one sword is cool, well, two's awesome. <laughs> Same thing with guns. Yeah. But why do you just want to carry one gun? And here's something else. You want to carry a gun where it is efficient to get it. That makes sense. Okay? You would not tuck a gun down at the bottom of the crotch of your underwear. You <laughs> just wouldn't do it. Okay? You don't not use holsters. You don't just tuck oh a gun God. into your waistband. That's not how it works. That's how you get things blown off. It can work that way. It's not smart. <laughs> it's not. I mean, it's like carrying a sharp knife without a sheath on it, people. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't make as much sense. But where you hold a gun, it makes sense to people that you would put it somewhere where it's easy to draw. Okay? It's the same with a knife. Quit putting your primary knife in your boot. Stop it. Stop it today. Just you can put your secondary blade. Actually, I recommend like a tertiary, like a third third case scenario blade. Keep it in your boot just for a tool or whatever, or worst case scenario, you've lost everything else. You're on the ground. Well, hey, you've got the one in your boot. It's the same way with... shouldn't be your go-to. Yeah, it's the same way with guns. When you carry guns, you have one super easily accessible on your hip. Maybe right. you have another one on your hip. Your last resort gun is your ankle gun. Thank you. That was yeah. actually something that the first time I met you in person was at a Realmakers conference. And that was something that you mentioned that had never really crossed my mind as far as having a character mm-hmm. with multiple weapons. For me, it's obvious oh, yeah. they put it in the same spot every time so they can pull it out of habit from the same spot every time. But that was something that you mentioned when we were talking is people will put weapons anywhere. Yeah, it's just not how it works. 
Uh, well, it can be that way. Is it smart? You can drive with your knees. You can. <laughs> should you? No. And can that, you? Should you? Two different things. That goes back to fighters, people who know what they're doing, will do things in the most efficient way possible. That's how they Absolutely. win. Absolutely. Yes. Because it conserves energy. My gosh. When I spar, I'm the smallest and the oldest a whole lot of the time on the mat. And I was sparring with a 16-year-old boy, which is one of the most dangerous creatures on the planet. And he said, I can't keep up with you, which is a joke and a half, okay, first of all. And I said, no, I'm not faster than you. I'm just not wasting motion. He's hopping everywhere. He's like a grasshopper fighting a turtle. You know, I'm like, I don't have your energy. And so I'm going to move just as much as I And that's a blessing of being an older fighter. You're just like, I don't have the energy for that fancy mess. Let's just do what works. <laughs> so, yeah, it not only is it the most efficient way to deliver a strike or to implement a technique, it saves energy. And there is a saying in jiu-jitsu, if you think, you're late. If you're late, you use strength. If you use strength, you tire. And if you tire, you die. Mm-hmm. So it is very important to learn that muscle memory and to do things efficiently because if you tire, you die. The body will give out before the brain does. I shouldn't say that for everybody, but, you know, (laughs) cardio has an end. Your brain doesn't have cardio. Your body has cardio, and it ends at some point. So you have to, with your brain, conserve it as much as you can. My main character in my book right now is taking jujitsu self-defense class. And when Mm -hmm. you said... That if you think you're late, I was like, oh, I need to write that down. That needs to go in my book. <laughs> yeah, I think it's attributed to Saulo Hibero, and, and it's not Hibero. I think he got it from one of the Gracies. Hmm. Yeah, everything goes back to the Gracies at some point in Jiu-Jitsu. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah. but it, it's true. If you think you're late, and our coach tells us that all the time. He goes, as soon as you get in this position, boom, this is your response. He goes, if you have to think about it, it's done. Mm-hmm. It's too late. We don't spar as much in my particular martial art, but we do something similar where we work out with another. And that's one of the goals in that. And he says slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Because you're, you're training yourself to do things in a certain way so you don't have to think about it at the time. It's a a physical, yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. Muscle memory. And you can't spar in every martial art. Kung Fu is one of those, you can't just go Kung Fu on each other. You will hurt each other. And it was the same thing in Aikido. Aikido is a lot of small joint manipulation. Mm -hmm. You can't break your partner's wrist. So you'll go through choreographed mimic fight things that are called katas. Kata is where you just walk through a mimic scenario and it links different moves together so that your body understands what can come next. It doesn't have to come next. But you know it can. That's what drills are for. When we go to class and we do this one movement again and again and again, it's not that we don't understand the movement. It's not that our brain doesn't know the movement. We're teaching our body to do the movement without us having to think about it. Exactly. And the same is applied to gunfighting. Somebody who is trained to carry will consistently practice how to draw from their holster, how to come to aim, and shoot. It's not something that you just say, oh, I did it once, I'm fine. Right. It it is. And not only do you have to build the muscle memory, you have to be mentally conditioned to draw on another human. 
Mm-hmm. And that's very hard. People think, oh, yeah, somebody breaking my house, I'll shoot them. Well, statistically, you won't. Mm-hmm. And so you have to get into that mindset of this is what the body is supposed to do. I am supposed to do this so that you don't break down. Now, I'm not saying you should just shoot without looking. <laughs> I'm saying that if you're in a situation where you have to draw your weapon, and I don't think you should draw a weapon unless you're willing to use it, mm-hmm. I do not think you should ever draw a weapon just to threaten. I think that is a bad, bad, bad choice. Mm. I say if you show, you better be willing to go. Part of that, too, is just getting the concept of this is okay, this is what I have to do. And and it's the same thing when I did knife stuff. We actually had a little target that we hung up, and we would have to draw and tap it to see how quick we could do it. So same concept. Having your character make that decision when you're writing a killer-type character That decision to kill is not made on the battlefield. If you are making that decision in a life or death situation, you're going to end up on the second part of that. You are going to die. Yeah. Yeah. And you're either going to die or, you know, I think sometimes people do pull the gun and close their eyes and shoot and they kill somebody. But it is not. And I write about this in my book. It is not a normal emotional state to kill another person. It's just not what we were intended to do. And the brain really, really suffers the consequences. So although that person may pull out the gun, close their eyes and shoot, you know what? They're probably going to drop that gun after they shoot it because it's going to be such a shock to their system. And they are going to have, I think anybody and everybody's going to have some mental issues after that is normal. You're supposed to have mental issues after you kill another human being. Even if you're 100% in the right, If you're a police officer and you are saving another person, the fact that you had to take a life to do it, it should weigh on you a little bit. But I think people aren't as likely to kill another human as people think. We look at murder statistics and we're like, oh, yeah, we can just kill indiscriminate. No, it does absolutely take its toll. And that's another thing with practicing. You practice to the point to where your body automatically does it and takes care of the situation without your brain hesitating. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm not saying you shouldn't look at the situation thoroughly, but I'm also saying that if you pull a weapon, there's a reason use it. Mm-hmm. Guns are shocking. I, again, they're heavier <laughs> than people think. They're louder than people think. And the sound a gun makes is called a report. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people don't know that. It's called a report. Now, you can say, I heard a gunshot, but you can also say, I heard the report. So if you're constantly having to say, shoot, shoot, shoot. Now, the beauty of shotguns is you don't have to aim so much as just point. <laughs> yeah, shotgun spray. Who don't, yeah, shotguns, it's like they're throwing a whole bunch of rocks. <laughs> and the closer you are to the shotgun, the smaller circle you're going to have and the more damage you're going to have. The farther away you are, the bigger the spray and the less damage. But the thing is, because you have that big spray out, you don't have to worry about, will I hit them? Yeah, some's going <laughs> to hit them. Again, if you throw a bucket of rocks, one of them is going to hit the person. <laughs> I talk about that in my book, too, the different names for things with guns and the difference in a shotgun and a pistol and, and what a rifle is and what a rifle isn't and all that good stuff. On that note, there is a lot more information from Carla. So if you're liking what you're hearing, there's a whole bunch of resources out there. You want to point them in the direction they should go? Yeah. Look, uh, bite right. How to Write Believable Fight Scenes with Writer's Digest. It'll be in a bookstore near you, probably. I know it's definitely in Barnes & Noble. You can look online. If you're not an Amazon person, I know some people like, I will not shop at Amazon. 
There's a ton of places online you can get it. I will say you can go to Amazon and look at the table of contents and look at a sample of it. So you're like, oh, okay, I see that this is absolutely information I need. And I think you'll be surprised at the information that's in it because it's not just punching and kicking. Because honestly, the actual physical confrontation of the fight isn't really the biggest portion of the fight. It's all the human factors that come into it, all the after effects and all that good stuff. So look for the book. You may see it published by Writer's Digest, or you may see the name Penguin Random House. It just depends. Fightright.net, my blog. Honestly, if you go to Fightright.net, you'll be able to get everywhere. It's got a link to anything and everything. And we will have all of this on the landing page of our website. Easy link to Fightright, and that's W-R-I-T-E, to the website, to the books, and how to find the podcast. All of that will be on the landing page for this episode, which is at writingrootspodcast.com. And until we see you next, you fight selfishly and you write selfishly. If you have a question or comment for our hosts or a topic you'd like us to cover, send us an email at writingroots at aspenhousepublishing.com or find us on Facebook by searching for Aspen House Publishing. 